Ledger is a writing podcast and a crawl space for you to die in and be reborn from. I'm your host, Austin Wilson, and today I'm chatting with author Brian Allen Carr about his newest book, Bad Foundations, which is out via Clash Books, and it's coming out just mere days away from the publication of this very episode. Go to Clash Books and buy Bad Foundations by Brian Allen Carr. Uh, it is a peak into the the hidden and ignored world beneath the feet of some Midwesterners, one that is uh, literally supporting their entire lives. Uh, its narrator is a man named Cook, and, and essentially you're going to open this book and meet a brand new co-worker. Um, actually, you might, it'll be co-workers, because Cook's life and his job are filled with a bunch of recognizable weirdos, you know, friends, family, and, and work acquaintances alike. Brian and I get to talk about the importance of setting and it's very important to Brian, so we talk about it for, for quite a bit. He's originally from Texas, but he lives in uh, Indiana now. He also wrote a book called Opioid Indiana, so we talk about that as well. We also get into one of Ledger's you know, regular discussions about genre, although in this case, uh, we also talk about sharks that leap out of puddles, so make sure you, you listen for that part. Um, we also talk about how Brian is literally currently working as a foundation inspector, like the protagonist of Bad Foundations. And also, what happens when you win a big short story contest? Like, what what's your life like before it? What's your life like after it? Brian happened to win the inaugural Texas Observer Short Story Contest in 2011, which, by the way, was judged by Larry McMurtry. And he got a letter from Larry. Uh, so what's what's a writer's life like before and after something like that? We talk about that as well. There's a lot of swearing. So if you're listening in public, wear headphones, as you should always do. Um, so just heads up for the swearing. Uh, but anyway, it's a great chat. I had a ton of fun with Brian. It, like like all the, the ones that I love having conversation, it just felt like we were just chilling and, and talking talking about stuff that we liked. So ton of fun. Make sure you go to clashbooks.com and grab Bad bad Foundations. Swing by my website, alstonarwilson.com, to check out my writing. Uh, There's a list of my work there and free stuff that you can check out. Uh, There's a contact form. You can send me email. Let me know what you think about this episode and other episodes. And then check out Ledger on all the publishing platforms that's out there on Spotify, Apple, Google, all that stuff. Let me know what you think. I appreciate it. Uh, But for now... Here's my chat with Brian Allen Carr. I mean, the big first thing that I was going to ask you uh, is how the hell did you end up in Indiana? Because <laughs> I know you're from Texas. So my wife uh, is from Franklin, Indiana. Okay, and so now that I'm thinking about it, there's two Franklin, Indianas. Oh, there's that. Okay. There's there's three really. There's Franklin Township where I live. Franklin Community, which is on the south side of Indy, but closer. And then Franklin, which is up near Anderson. I do go to Anderson a lot, but not that Franklin as much. Indiana's weird because they use a lot of the same names over and over again. There's a lot of Greens, Greensburg, Greenville, Greencastle. A lot of Browns, Brownsburg, uh, Browntown. There's a... But so my wife was living in McAllen. She was previously married. She was down there with her husband. Um, and we met down there. They, I did. It's kind of funny. I've never told this story to anybody, uh, in this regard, but so I was married to a girl and she was married to a guy and we all hung out and we're buddies. 
And then at some point in time, we decided to swap swap spouses. (laughs) So I'm married to, well, so so my wife's ex-husband's wife is my ex-wife. But so we, the ex-wife and I, are both from South Texas. They are both from Franklin, Indiana. They were living down there. They live out in San Francisco. Well, no, they say San Francisco, but they live in a town called Sunnyvale. They live in Silicon Valley. Yeah. And and we moved back up here about six years ago. So Rebecca and I have been together for about 20 years. And like, I think uh, 12 years ago, we moved up. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's wrong. Six years ago, we moved up. But so we would always kind of come up here. We were both teachers. And so one summer, we were like, fuck it, let's just move. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I was born and raised here, and yeah. never never lived in another state. Um, yeah, so I'm sure you can imagine I have a a fraught relationship with the place. Yeah, uh, but I don't know that I'll leave. Like I I, mm-hmm. I do really like it here. Yeah. as much as I struggle with it sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm the I'm the same way with Texas. I think yeah. most people have well. I don't know. I, I imagine most writers have a fairly fraught relationship with where they live. I mean, because, you know, I don't know what that is, but like, you know, if you even think about like James Joyce and Dubliners or whatever, I mean, there's actually, you ever seen that movie Orange County? Yeah. Where he goes and he's like deciding he's going to get, and the, and the professor's like, bro, every writer hates where they live. Dude, that, that seriously had a big impact on me when it came out because mm-hmm. that I've always been obsessed with these things, you know, and, and writing stories and stuff when I was a kid. But that was right around the time when I was like sort of conceptualizing mm-hmm. myself as somebody yeah. who would do this yeah. and seeing that. And let's talk about that relationship with where you're from, because your fir- your first book, it's called Sip, came out in 2017. Mm-hmm. It's set in Texas. Mm-hmm. You have other stuff that's set in Texas and now you live in Indiana and you wrote a book called Opioid Indiana, uh, Bad Foundations, your your book that, as of this recording, comes out in six days. Yeah, some um, of it, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's set in the Midwest. I think it mentions Ohio. I can't remember if it mentions Indiana specifically, but let's talk about how the world outside your front door, very specifically, uh, can influence your work and, and how it has. Um, to me, I think it has to be the cornerstone of what you write about for a couple different reasons. So I'm from South Texas. Probably the most well-known writer from down there is Gloria Anzaldúa. And that's not true. There's a couple different writers from down there. But there was always this idea with the writers from down there. They were extremely territorial about their place. They didn't like people coming and writing about their place. And realistically, that probably has a lot to do with the fact that William S. Burroughs was the first person who wrote about the Rio Grande Valley in a very broadly public uh, uh, published book called Junkie. And he only really writes about the valley for about eight pages. And it's beautiful writing, but he puts it down. He puts it down drastically. And so I'm kind of of the opinion that you're not supposed to write about a place where you haven't lived. And I'm not even just sort of of that opinion. I fucking hate when people do it. <laughs> like, I, I, I'm to the detriment of my writing career. I do not like when people write about places where they're not intimately from. And I think part of that 
was just me gearing up for the world of AI. Because honestly, I don't even see a point in writing about a place you ain't been before. Because how the fuck do I know I ain't just reading the computer garbling at me? So, I don't know. I think that everybody is supposed to discuss the place that they're in because it's the only place where you can actually touch your thoughts to the to the reality of that world. And so, when I moved up here, I knew that I was going to not write as much about Texas because I was up here. But a first line of opioid Indiana is I'm from Texas, but most of the story takes place in Indiana. And I did that very purposefully because... Something in my moral code says that if you're from a place, you get to write about it. And if you're not from that place, you can write about it once you're kind of from there. But you better fucking tell people that you're not fully from there. Uh, And I don't think that's a widely held belief. And I'm not sure that it's a belief that I should have. but (laughs) But it's a belief that was instilled in me from the writers of my area. Um, so I, 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 it's, there's a couple things that I get, I don't know, quasi hostile about in the literary world. And I think that class and geography and race to a certain extent, race too, but I'm a white dude. So it's weird, right? You're, you're supposed to be very, I don't know, man. I don't like the idea of taking other people's stories yeah, I just don't something. And again, I think it's because of those eight pages in Junkie where I love that book, dude. I fucking love that book. But at the same time, he calls the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, he says he says death hangs over the Rio Grande Valley like a fog. And then he just berates the place for fucking eight pages. And it's beautiful writing and it's spot on, but it's it can be hurtful. You know what I yeah. mean? Um and so, so this place I love very much. It's very different than where I'm from. And I like to talk about that in my writing. But I, I, I try to triangulate that, if that makes sense. Because I don't own Indiana. You know, I'm not, a, I'm not from the Midwest. Well, that, that's an interesting concept. And the first line of opioid Indiana being, I'm from Texas, but this story takes place in Indiana. So are you, are you carrying that? with you into every book going forward are you burying your texas right now i am i'm think my next book that i'm kind of toying with doing right now is set again in texas um it's it's about a character i've been thinking about i've been working on for in my head and heart for years and years there's a very famous in texas um outlaw named sally skull uh she was very well known for murdering her husband she was a horse trader I had a story called uh, the first Henley. Larry McMurtry gave me the uh, uh, a Texas Observer Story Prize. It was the first Texas Observer Story Prize, and there was a little bit of Sally Skull in that story. And when when Larry gave me the award, I, I knew that at some point in time I'd do a book about Sally. And uh, so I think my next book's going to be about Texas if I can do it. It's very hard, um, but. But as, yeah, my last two books for sure, it's very much like uh, the, the discussion of the two places. There's a few pages in Bad Foundations that talk about South Texas, but, but it's like two pages. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, and I think more than anything, though, it's just me having to be, to reiterate for my own moral code 
that like I ain't trying to steal your place. I'm a fucking outsider here. Yeah. I mean, like, and I'm serious. Like it, it's very important to me to to enter every project like that to be very mindful uh, of of geography. There's a couple of things in there that, that I want to touch on. Yeah, uh, one of them being the voice, and specifically, uh, if you so like for opioid Indiana, the main character is not Brian Allen Carr. No, no, no. And in Bad Foundations, it's not Brian Allen Carr. But I am so interested in, in the idea that your voice is still so much in there that you you feel the need to say, uh, I'm from Texas. Yeah, I mean, and I would say both of those characters are variations of myself. Yeah. Kind of. I mean, they just, ver- I mean, when I write first person, it's hard for me not to do that. Now, when I do it in short stories, it's not as hard. But in novel form, if I'm doing first person, it and I and it probably goes to that a little bit of OCD about I don't want to take anything from anybody. So a lot of my characters, especially the narrators, are kind of just me. Um, but yeah, I can't. I do not think I could ever get to a point where I felt intimately aware of Indiana in a way that I thought that I could create the character who grew up here. I know this place very well. I know a lot of people. I do not think I could ever be like, here's a first person narrator who was born and raised in Indiana. And I don't think I want to. Yeah. Cause I want somebody else to do that. Man, this is so interesting to me. I have for the longest time fought the idea that I had to set my stuff where I was from and mm-hmm. fought the idea that I should, that, um, which is hilarious because I have a, you know, a poster of Indiana next to my head, but mm-hmm. it's got cryptids on it. So it's weird yeah. still. <laughs> um, no, I like it. But the idea of pushing Indiana away and, huh? and not I letting it encroach on my writing. But the most recent thing I started I realized that it had to be set here. Mm-hmm. It had to be. Did, and, do you find on that project that you have that not an ease, but a freeness? Like, do you find, do you find if you sit down to write about a character from somewhere else, it's harder, it, but that you're just giving yourself that task for whatever the reason might be. I'm or, not sure yet. Okay. I, I think the, the jury's still out because I, I get that. I'm still pretty early on, but the, that idea, like those things that you're saying all make sense to me and writers that I've read who are great about writing about where they're from, Jim Harrison, mm-hmm. you know, other, other people writing these things where I can feel the dirt they're talking about and it's not mm-hmm. mine. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I well, I, I do know it's, it comes back to the thing we were talking about earlier about that, that fraught relationship, you know, as I grew up, I couldn't imagine continuing to live in this place mm-hmm. that I had to leave. Yeah. Well, and that's, it's a pretty typical youth thing. It's a, well, realistically, it's probably built into us through manifest destiny. In fact, right. A lot, yeah, Anglo Americans are supposed to move the fuck out of their house ASAP yep. and go yep. the fuck away and maybe never see their parents again. You know, like it's kind of built into you. And then other folks don't necessarily have that as ingrained. But, 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 you know, I mean, 
immigrant families have that in the capacity that even we do not, you know, like, so I used to teach at Ivy Tech a little bit here in Indianapolis and all my students who were, you know, from the Ukraine or from Nigeria or whatever, they had an adventure in their soul, bro. They were going and Indiana wasn't their destination. They were going somewhere after that too. They had an adventure in their soul. I always had, it sounds like you had it too, uh, um, that a little bit of a, not really an adventure, a, what would it be? Self-deprecation or like hypercriticalness. I'm very critical of my culture and my place. And the only way I can cure that is to leave. And that's real. And I do think that that's some weird extension of manifest destiny. Uh, that was, you know, cause like, right. We're, if you're in America and your, your people have been here for five generations, go West, young man. You know what I mean? And and, and so, um, you know, I think it's weird oftentimes how our moral codes are built on these very pragmatic practices, right? But yeah, no, how, what year were you born? I was born in 84. Okay, so I was born in 79. So, yeah, I mean, in the 90s, I thought that I was supposed to I don't know, move to Hollywood, move to Brooklyn, move to Seattle, move to and fucking go where the real shit happened. You know what that, I mean? Yeah. That right there, that idea of realness. I can remember as a 19 year old telling my mom, I'm going to move to New York and I'm going to write about being homeless. I was luckily. <laughs> yes, I was going to do I was going to do homeless, but in Austin. I was, yeah. <laughs> so there's a I mean, I was lucky that I was from Texas because in Texas we have Austin, and which is where I was born, but not where I was necessarily raised. I lived there till I was two. And then I lived again there from 19 to 24. But so it, you would move to Austin in Texas and it was like you were moving to fucking Hollywood. You know yeah. what I mean? And yeah. more so now I'm fucking pissed. I don't live there now. I'm not a huge <laughs> Joe Rogan fan, but I love comedy. And yeah. he has like made that place the comedy capital of the country. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, and his his club is in the bar that I used to hang out in. It was called the Ritz. That was like my bar, you know what I mean? So I'm kind of like, fuck. But so anyway, there was this street called Guadalupe. Guadalupe, but it's called Guadalupe in Austin. And there were these homeless people who lived on Guadalupe and they were called drag rats because another term for Guadalupe was called the drag. Yeah, And so I was, I was like, I'm going to write a book called Trapping the Rat and I'm going to go live with the drag rats and I'm going to write about them. I never yep. got very far. <laughs> Dude, but seriously, I'm, I'm sure I was like two months after reading Kerouac and being like, I'm going to New York. And my yeah. mom's like, don't do it. And luckily I, I didn't do it. I mean, who knows if I had the, the actual desire to do that or if that just that self-deprecation that, like, that mm. you mentioned, even before, yeah. you know, we first, we started t tonight, I, I couldn't mention that I live in Indiana without talking about how fraught it is for me, how I, mm. there's things I dislike about it. I, I can't just be like, yeah, I'm from Indiana. I have to come back to that. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And I had one other lucky turn of events and that my favorite beat was uh, Burroughs and yeah. he came from New York to texas so i was like i'm fucking already in the right yeah, place i don't have to go anywhere i'm there <laughs> fucking here <laughs> yeah so let's talk about the that mcmurtry award i saw that and i was like okay 2011 first texas observer short story award 
And just coincidentally, I had started reading McMurtry's biography, which came out last Mm -hmm. year. And there's a lot of stuff in there about place setting. Yeah. Yeah. Arch Arch of City. (laughs) Arch of City. Yes. Yeah. Uh, No joke. The two books that I read of his that changed my life are books and roads. Oh, those (laughs) are good. Have you I read uh, Have you read uh, Walter Ben Benjamin and uh, Dairy Queen? No, I haven't. That's a pretty good one too. My favorite of his books was probably his first Horseman Passed By, which was made into the movie HUD. Yeah. Um, I have probably only read six of his books. He's got several. Larry McMurtry is one of those who like he's one of my favorites, but like I don't want to run out of his books, and also. He's one of my favorites, but in a complicated way. My mother's favorite book and movie was Terms of Endearment when I was very young. Oh. And um and when I was when that was her favorite, um my older brother and I were about the same age. We were kids and the mother dies of cancer. Oh. Uh, uh and uh heartbreaker. And yeah. and she looked like my mom. Ugh. Uh, and my mom's, she's still alive. She's still with us or whatever. But like, I don't know in my head, he's so many different writers, uh, cause he's done so many different things. But in my head, a big portion of him is my mom's favorite book and movie from when I'm a kid. So it's a little harder for me to fully romanticize him. If that makes any sense though, I do fully romanticize him just in a kind of complicated way. No, that makes sense. I mean, the first time I ever, <laughs> this is not a one-to-one comparison, but it reminds me of hearing Fleetwood Mac growing up. Yes. Because my parents were huge Fleetwood Mac fans, and they would be listening to Fleetwood Mac, like, cleaning the house, and I'm like, yeah. this shit sucks. Yeah. And then I hit age, like, 25, and I'm like, this shit is great. Yeah. <laughs> I, no, but... I have to figure out my own way into it. Yeah. No, I know. It's weird. It's like some things your parents own. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you're like, ah, that's mom's. But yep. luckily, Larry was several different pa- people. So probably then too, I saw Lonesome Dove as a kid before I read the book, and um, and so it gave me the ability to kind of like him in different ways. But yeah, and and then too, he was very much Mister Texas. And yeah. so when I was young, I didn't want to be Mister Texas. Not until I was like in my twenties did I even, like I said, I think my favorite writer who talked about texas when i was a teenager was william s burroughs yeah and um and larry what he knew all the beats but he wasn't no beatnik um his he he was really really close with ken kesey who was close with the beats but larry wasn't nearly as as close with the beats and so i didn't see him as cool or as cool and now I do. Now I see yeah. them as as way cooler than the Beats. Now I see the Beats <laughs> as little boys. But yeah. um, but it takes time to age into the understanding of like the complexities of storytelling. When you're younger, you like stuff that's like, oh wow, that's cool, edgy. You yeah. like shit that's edgy. And then as you get older, I still like edgy shit. Yeah. But but I like I like some maudlin, saccharine, make me feel good shit. You know. Well, the edge, I think, it you it ends up needing. I think for me, anyways, the older I get, the edge needs a little bit more embellishment around it. It can't just mm-hmm. be the edge. I've got to have some other stuff mm-hmm. that leads up to it or leads away from it. Mm-hmm. And it's got you know you grow into it, or maybe not. Some people don't 
No, yeah, I, I know plenty of mid forty riders who are like, "Motherfucker, you're you, are you fucking thirty, twelve years old? Like, what are you know? Like, there's a lot of riders who are like, they they're never gonna grow up, man. You know, and it, it is what it is. Yeah, there's some there's something about that that makes me kind of sad, like especially from like male writers. I, I talk about this a lot with my book club because I'm in, I'm in a book club with three women. Yeah. It's literally yeah. just me and, and three <laughs> women. And as you probably know, statistically, men barely read books. Like that's Correct. not a, that's not a thing. Mm-hmm. So then having male writers who have chops, who can, can write maudlin or saccharine mm-hmm. or, or even not those things, just dramatic or, or mm-hmm. emotional things. And tender. tender, tender, maybe. Tender. Is, yeah. 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 I think that's a, a good word. It kind of breaks my heart to see that stuff and the idea that you wouldn't give in to emotion or the the just the the entire existence of of human mm. existence. Yeah, um, it's some people some people just want to be cool, and, and yeah. it's like cool ain't that fucking cool though. You know what I mean? Like I don't know, uh, you know. I mean, I I I've done I've been arrested several times. I've I've done all the drugs. I've, you know, like I've done all that. It's, but I can't do, I'm not a teenager forever. Right. Do you know what I mean? And like, and I'm not really, yeah, angry. And I'm not like, I would never go live in New York with like the literati people. I don't like them. They make me feel, they make me feel gross. My like, so alt lit, I feel like was that kind of like is kind of a parallel to the beats for us and the only writer that i really like from that scene is scott mcclanahan he and i I he's probably the closest thing i have to a literary big brother he published my second little story collection on hauler presents and and in some ways i was always like there's other good writers in the altlet community but like the more prominent ones I was always like, why do you fucking hang out with those dudes, man? They're fucking children. And, you know, half of them still live at home and do drugs. So I'm glad you brought up Altlet. That was one of my questions because mm-hmm. uh, I was looking through your, your bibliography at, at stuff mm-hmm. that you've published. And we'll get back to the McMurtry thing because I still want to yeah. talk about that short yeah. story <laughs> win. Um, but, you know, you, your Bad Foundations is coming out from Clash. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got two books from Soho Press. Uh, you have two from a place called Lazy Fascist Press, mm-hmm. which I was uh, excited by that title or the the name of that. <laughs> yes, yeah. they they did. Re- that was run by this guy Cameron Pierce, who's fixing to start another press. He put it to bed. But like, let me just tell you some of the writers that Cameron found or worked with early on in their careers: Stephen Graham Jones, Kevin Maloney, Scott McClanahan, Jeremy Robert Johnson. Who the fuck else? Me, Michael J. Seidlinger. But so, like, I mean, he was he was fine. Like, Lazy Fastest to me is one of the best little presses that ever existed. It was up in Portland. And he worked with some just remarkable, talented people. One of the brightest young men I've ever known. Considerably younger than me. Um, but it was, it was kind of in the bizarro world. It was kind of like this weird overlap. Oh, Sam Pink. He did Sam Pink's books, which are badass. But it was this weird overlap of like alt lit bizarro mashup marriage horror lit you know this kind of stuff. And I, um, 
so so there were definitely some alt lit people in that scene who I liked, or if that makes any sense. Yeah. Well, the two books that you have that came out through Lazy <laughs> Fascists are called Motherfucking Sharks, which amazing title, uh, <laughs> and then the last horror novel in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. It's a novella. A novella. Oh. <laughs> but, no, no, <laughs> that's, no. That's even better. <laughs> the the title is novel, but it's like twelve thousand words. Long. That's amazing. So let's talk about let's talk about genre because Bad Foundations, Opioid Indiana. I, when I found your stuff, uh, if, you know, to get ready for the interview to do mm-hmm. to do this, I was like, oh shit, he's you know he's a literary dude, which is another reason why I was like, holy shit, he lives in Indiana. What the hell is going on? But let's talk about genre because you've got a book called Vampire Conditions, which I think that's the one McClanahan, mm-hmm. which is which is. Um... It's pretty much real. There's no, uh, uh, the term vampire conditions. There's a line of the book where it says, uh, if you were there in the daytime, you'd most likely convulse Christ. Those are vampire conditions. So like, but when I put out what, that was my second little book. And when I put out that book, everybody thought it was about vampires. Makes sense. I get sure. it. <laughs> um, uh, and I was like, I could write, I could write vampire stuff, but then I, but then, so my next one, two, three, I think larger books were all what you would maybe consider genre or weird, uh, um, horror, weird horror, maybe in those books. And I guess even in your later books, uh, if, if genre affects the things that you're writing, cause in motherfucking sharks, sharks come out of puddles. That's mm-hmm. not, <laughs> That's not pretty, realistic <laughs> that's pretty straightforward genre um but i'm interested in how you are engaging with what the wider publishing world would call genre um or if it's completely gone from anything after those books or completely even gone from your like mental landscape as far as the things that you're going to be writing afterwards no i would say the way i always saw genre I think it actually stretches back to the initial beginnings of lit. Uh, My dad was a preacher. I love the Bible. That is a non-realistic book. Yeah. (laughs) Okay? Very non-realistic book. Don Quixote is one of my favorite novels. It's kind of genre, dude. Uh, uh, Arabian Nights. Loved that book as a kid. That's fucking genre. So I never saw it as a commercial enterprise. I honestly saw it as reaching back to the initial origins of storytelling. The Odyssey, Beowulf. To me, it was like, okay. Um, And then two, one of my favorite writers is Samuel Beckett. And so when I think about like waiting for Godot, to me, seems like sci-fi. Or like Twilight Zone. And so there's that not a uh, play, The Rhinoceros. I can't remember that. Ionesco, maybe. So I always thought that what I was playing with wasn't really a kind of commercial genre, but it was this kind of magical, ancient um, literary tradition of um, symbology. I saw it as symbols. I still see everything as symbols or patterns. And so I didn't see it as, you know, 
I didn't see it as as tethered to anything but lit. I don't think I think of anything as tethered to anything but like artistic writing. I think all writing is artistic in a, in a, in a sort of way. And, and by artistic, I mean, I don't know what I mean exactly, but like, <laughs> no, I'm serious. I don't uh-huh. But but like you know the invi- uh, 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 Borges' favorite writer was H.G. Wells. Which well, okay. Crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's which, awesome. <laughs> but, but which is also Borges's favorite. Uh, he thought the Western was the greatest format of writing ever. The greatest of epics was the Western. So you know, and I had all these kind. Of, I grew up in an area that was predominantly Latin American people, and a lot of the writers from the area were Hispanic people, and so Borges was a god. And if you look at like. Juan Rulfo or uh, Tomas Rivera, sort of these Mexican-American writers who wrote about my region of the country, there was always a little bit of magical realism in it. I mean, Gabriel Garcia Marquez took took magical realism from kind of two places, Kafka, uh, Kafka and um, Juan Rulfo. And so to me, it was like the at natural progression. I don't, it didn't, it didn't occur to me that it was like something different. It yeah. was all to me. I see it all as similar, de- and again, symbols. I think it's all just symbology. If that, that makes sense. Do you think that's the main engine of your storytelling? Symbols, mm-hmm. patterns, myth. Mm-hmm. myth, symbols, and myth. Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that my dad was a preacher, and so what he would do as a preacher every Sunday, he would take a piece from the Bible. Most oftentimes, it was not very realistic, and then he would have to read that out loud explain it and then use um modern day stories to articulate the thesis of those biblical passages and so to me that's what you're supposed to do as a writer you're supposed to use symbols that are mythical or universal or infinite and then you're supposed to bounce that against um uh, modern day um, happenings and, and almost juxtapose them, smack them together. Ocean Vuong talks about it being proximity. He's from a probably, I'd, I'm guessing, a more Buddhist uh, background. And so he likes to put things next to each other and let them, I don't know, affect each other, like gra- yeah. gra- gravity. I'm like, ah, <laughs> yeah. smash. smash them together, <laughs> smash those ideas together. And I think a lot of ways it's just me doing what my daddy did, you know, it's just me being like my daddy. <laughs> so, so let's talk about that then, especially with bad foundations, um, which uh, for listeners, you know, it's a, it's about a guy who's going into crawl spaces mm-hmm. underneath houses, looking at foundations, mm-hmm. hence the title. So are you engaging with that imagery and, and telling a story in a way that is because I'm I would imagine our minds probably work at least somewhat similar to some mm-hmm. of these situations. So I'm immediately thinking of death and rebirth into mm-hmm. the darkness, out of the out mm-hmm. of the dirt, into the dirt, all those things. Is is that at the forefront of your mind as you're writing, or are you just going where the story takes you and then kind of mining the theme as you're as you're going through it? So I feel like there's hardware software for every story, right? There's like the hard, the, the operating system and then whatever's taking place. And so I think that you have your symbology. You're always trying to fight it becoming 
um, a bedtime story or you, you, you have to fight it becoming, uh, too over the top. That said, but so like earlier on, we were talking about, um, writing about homeless people. And I had that idea of the story trapping the rat. Well, when I moved up here, I, t I was working at a school called Rose Holm and I was writing case studies for them. It was a one-year grant funded deal. When that came to an end, I was like, I still want to do this kind of case study stuff. I want to do immersive stuff. So I was like, I want to write a jobs book. So I was like, well, what skills do I have? Not many. I could transition into sales though. So I hadn't done sales since I sold shoes as a young man. I looked on Indeed to try to find jobs. Found a job selling uh, phone book ads. And I was like, I'm going to go learn how to sell phone book ads. I had this idea that I was going to write a book called There at the End. And it was going to be about how ridiculous selling phone book ads was. But boy, I couldn't do it. I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't sell phone book ads. So I was like, fuck this. This ain't going to work. <laughs> I went and taught high school for a year. I wrote Opioid, Indiana. I was like, I got to find a job. I can't sell fucking phone book ads. So I went and taught high school. Uh, wrote up with you at Indiana. I was like, I could do this again. I could do a kind of another jobs-based book. I could do an immersive research book. Went and sold cars for a year and a half. I wanted to write a book called Salesman, and I wanted it to look like this on the cover. Brian Allen Carr, down at the bottom, Salesman. I thought it'd be hysterical. <laughs> so I was super good at selling cars, but I couldn't figure out a story that I wanted to tell. Like, I, I started a few times... A lot of moving parts and selling cars. Couldn't find the image that I wanted. And so I was like, and then the pandemic hit. And I was, I felt weird about selling people cars. Because I was like, you need to go home, save your fucking money. We might all be dead in three weeks. Uh, so I left that. And then I, I found a foundation repair job. And, and what, I, cause I was looking through indeed, you know, like, what can I go fucking sell and maybe get a fucking weird book out of. And I saw an ad for some, for working in a foundation repair place. And I was like, dude, that's a great concept. That's a great world. That's a, the, the metaphor is already there, you know? So I was like, fuck it. I'll go do that. And so that I'm, I'm still doing it on, I mean, I actually like doing it. The problem is, is that it's like my schedule's so good. I have so much freedom. I make more money doing this than I can do teaching college. So I'm like, God damn it. Am I going to be trapped doing this? Um, I'm turning 45 this year. I told my wife, I'm not doing foundation repair. This is 2024 is the last year I'll do it. And I'm hoping maybe not even to do it all of 24. I don't, I like it quite a bit. It's just that it's physically hard. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so it, it was very much like it was by design. You know what I mean? Like, like, it, but it was that it was like, okay, there's the background, go figure out the story in that world and then just have that operating system in the background. Then I can also teach people about a thing that they don't know about and this and this and that. Yeah. Well, see, that's even more interesting to me then because it almost feels like you are, designing your life around a book that doesn't exist yet so that you can yeah. help create the create the book um which is literally the exact opposite of what i've always done which is like i'm gonna do whatever the fuck i gotta do over here and it's yep. gonna have nothing to do with what i'm doing over here mm -hmm. and i 
I get that too. So when I was teaching college, I taught university for about nine, well, uh, not university. I taught, um, got my MFA, taught at a school called South Texas College for two years, got invited to, to apply to a school called University of Houston, Victoria. At the time, uh, Fiction Collective 2 was there and American Book Review. American Book Review is still there. Fiction Collective is not, but Dalkey Archive is. Very literary, small satellite. Bizarre that it exists. Very cool, but my wife didn't like the town. So I was there for a year. We went back to South Texas, and I taught at South Texas College for another six years. And like I said, I worked at Rose Holman up here. I taught a little bit at UND. I taught a little bit at Ivy Tech. The thing about that, though, that whole academic literary tie-in is is that um, your writing becomes a function of your job. Yeah. And I didn't like that at all. Plus, you get very competitive in these weird ways because, like, you know, if you're not working in academia, you want to publish where you publish. If you're working in academia, especially somebody with my background, I did not go to a good MFA program. If I don't get on a big press, you know, one of the big four, big five, or how many there are now, uh, the idea that I'm going to get a nice university job is not happening. So I started thinking about it as way too competitive. Like if I sent out a book and it didn't get picked up by a big five, I'd be like, y'all are taking fucking money out of my kids. You know, like that's yeah. how I felt about yeah. it, you know? And I was like, that's not healthy. And so that, which is why I left and did case study writing. Cause I was like, did I got to do something else? Um, but yeah, at some point in time, I decided it was just a lot easier <laughs> to try to have a kind of, uh, yeah, to do immersive writing. But then again, too, my, my undergrads in journalism, one of my favorite first writers was Hunter S. Thompson. And I like the idea of doing gonzo work. And, and especially anymore now, the idea that you're going to go to an MFA program and get a university or college job, that's not very easy to do anymore. So I almost saw it as kind of like my duty to my generation to figure out other fucking ways of doing it. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Well, that, that's the other thing is writing as a job, especially fiction, is real fucking hard. <laughs> it is. It's really, really hard. And I like I'm a copywriter. I mm -hmm. write freelance marketing copy, mm -hmm. um, social media, all that shit. Mm -hmm. But obviously fiction is my passion. Yep. And making money at it is not easy. And no. figuring out how making it my job, that's the thing that I've well, for you, like publishing through alt presses, mm -hmm. well, as as a younger, you know, writer, reader, um, I, I don't know that I had any sort of perception of what that would mean as far as mm -hmm. my life as a writer. But the, the the further I get away from from those years and the older I get, the more I'm like, well, what it means is that I can get my writing published. And that's that's the goal. <laughs> like, it doesn't yeah. matter if it's through Knopf or, you know, no. wherever. Well, and I would say, too, it's weird. We get recency bias really bad. My favorite writers were not on big presses. Yeah. I am so fortunate that one of my heroes is Jim Thompson. Yeah. Nobody fucking knew who he was when he died. And I was like, meh, that's fine. I don't give a fuck. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, um, uh, but nowadays you're like, oh, everybody good's on a big press. Not really. Yeah. Uh, it it you get you get tricked very or not you we get tricked very easily by things like uh, you know what press you're on, who's your agent, how many followers do you have on Twitter? All these fucking stupid things that yep that are that are ephemeral. Charles Bukowski was on a fucking itty bitty teeny tiny. And I know that nobody's supposed to like him anymore, but I'm sorry. Post Office and Ham on Rye are fucking badass books. Yeah. Is he an asshole? Yeah, but so is everybody I've ever met. <laughs> everybody I know has got somebody who wants him nearly dead. I mean, if oh, you sure. don't have if you don't have an enemy in life, you're not doing it right. <laughs> humans are complex messes we're giant we're giant messes but but i mean you know think like big think of like these huge riders from back in the day fucking lolita came out on a nothing press you know what i mean like that's the th so your mention of recency bias it makes me wonder if that's what i'm doing with because now it's so much easier for me because in indiana you know growing up alt presses were not <laughs> an easy thing for me to find now now they are but also now like two dollar radio is in ohio i could drive to their headquarters you have you been it's amazing i have multiple yeah. times i love yeah. it it's awesome yeah. um but like that shit it seems more prevalent to me now and i don't know if that's just because i have better access or if because really there are more alt presses popping up and there are all of these other publishers small beer press and you know coffee house it's books and all that stuff yeah, I think there's always like we'll think about like city lights back in the day, right? Like it's hard to say. I mean, I think that by virtue of the fact that a lot of the big presses have been around for a long time and have done a lot of books, well no shit, they got some big hitters. Like if yeah. you're gonna put out that many books and they wouldn't be around if they kept failing. Right. Um but yeah, I mean, I think that there's probably always been these sort of smaller, intimate presses. You know, um, uh, Isaac Newton's book came out on a small press Did because it? because the big press that wanted to do it had spent all their money that year on a book about fucking fish. So fucking <laughs> Edmund Haley was like, fuck it. I'll just pay for your shit to be printed. Poe paid for his own shit to be printed. Fucking... Uh, uh, Thoreau paid for his own shit to be printed. 300 print runs, something like that. But again, we get fucking fooled by by these... Um, it's like elitism keeping up with the Joneses, blah blah bloop whatever it is, what it is. But, but you should... Um, there's a bookstore in Indianapolis that you would really love called Dream Palace that just opened up. Taylor Lewandowski... Uh, runs it i'm thinking he'll probably start doing a little bit of a publishing arm through it but um you know there's all these beautiful book lovers scattered throughout the land you know what i mean and and anymore we just have the ability to harness that joy and and build on it without the need of of new york or san francisco or whoever I'm so happy you mentioned Dream Palace. I had never, I didn't know about that place. You'll love it, dude. So I'm Taylor, going. <laughs> Taylor does a great job of curating his selection. A lot of mainly used books. 
really nice coffee shop kind of deal. In fact, I'm doing a release reading there on the 27th or something. But yeah, I mean, and you know, but like you mentioned, two dollar radio, they're doing some of the coolest work ever. Oh, yeah, I love Clash, who I'm with right now. I think they're doing some of the coolest work ever. Um, they haven't been around as long as two dollar radio, but I don't, I they will be, and you know, I mean, it is what it is. I, I, I do understand that. It, uh, I did an interview a couple of weeks ago, and and this guy was like, uh, I read your book, loved it called a friend of mine who was an editor at Simon and Schuster. Uh, maybe that wasn't what it was. I don't know, but he brought it up to him. Well, I knew that clash wanted to publish my book. So when we sent out bad foundations to big presses, cause we thought we'd run it by some big presses. We were like, you got two weeks and if you want it, let us know. And if not, I don't give a fuck. Yeah. And so he told me he was like one of these editors if you'd have given more time he loved it he probably would have bought it he's like you really should have given him more time i was like you don't know what the fuck i want dude <laughs> who, the, who the fuck are you dude? Like, he's a very cool guy and i liked him very much yeah but like no i gave him two weeks <laughs> well, yeah because that's what i wanted that's the that's such an interesting part of this whole thing uh, of of the of the idea of writing and putting your stuff out there and i was watch i saw an interview with ethan hawk the other day who's one of the dudes i i love most of everything that hawk does did you did you read the hottest state that was see it's funny because he was talking about that yeah that's literally what his, his interview is about i have a copy of it and his mm -hmm. his newest one and he was talking about when he wrote that book and mm -hmm. he was like right on that precipice of being like the coolest fucking dude on the planet like yeah. right after reality bites comes out and he yeah which is a, an amazing movie i love it it's fantastic yeah. uh and he started writing this book and he was working with link later and uh -huh. link later saw the book and was like i love this mm -hmm. you got to keep doing this and hawk was <laughs> like okay and then the book came out and he said that everyone was so excited to shit on it they were so excited to to knock him down in a I way that was like who does this guy think is, oh, is he Hemingway now? Mm -hmm. Like he thinks he's a big writer man. Mm -hmm. And the thing he took from it was, and I've been thinking about this since I heard this interview like three days ago, is that mm -hmm. if the art is important to you enough that you feel like you have to make it, make it. Yeah. And then, and then after that, go, just go, mm -hmm. let it go. Mm -hmm. Rick Rick Rubin recently said something very similar too. He's like, when you do, when you make something, it's a tribute to God, and if that's what you make, you've made a tribute to God. Who gives a fuck? Whatever you made it for God, you know, like yeah. who who gives a shit what anybody else thinks but God? But that book, the hottest state, I found sitting by a pool. Uh, outside of my apartment. I didn't know about it. I mean, I knew Ethan Hawke, but I didn't know he had written a book. And I remember picking it up and being like, how lame. But I found it by a pool, and I was like, I'll read it. It's great. It's yeah. fucking great. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, I mean, there, and it was a little bit ahead of its time in some ways. So th there's this scene, and I haven't read it forever, but, like, he's dating this girl... And she's wearing, she doesn't wear skirts very much. And he's like, I like it when you wear skirts. And she's like, do you know how fucking vulnerable 
it feels to wear a skirt. And she was like, you wear a fucking skirt. <laughs> uh, and just have your fucking genitalia hanging there in the air. And tell me how you think about it. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, that like is such a strong representation of females that I, I had never seen anything like that. So I'm reading this book. My girl, my, my brother's dating this girl named Kim. She had read it too. She talks to me about it. She brings up the same scene. And I was like, he's got to have done something good. Yeah. Cause I remember feeling like fucking crazy. And then Kim was like, that's the first scene I like. She was like, that was the fucking coolest scene I've ever read. And so I was like, all right, Ethan Hawke's legit. Also, dude's a fucking artist and bonus points. He's a Texan. <laughs> Dude, every everybody from Texas is a fucking lame. Like, I could tell you, so you brought up Reality Bites. Oh, yeah, based in Houston. Great movie. <laughs> Dude, my one of my guys, I'll read literally anything he puts out. It's Lawrence Wright. Okay. And I read God Save Texas, and uh -huh. I learned a shitload of stuff about Texas. Yeah. Like, dish texas because they their mayor signed a deal with the dish network and they yeah, named yeah. themselves dish texas uh i love that dude's books uh and yeah. I, I, he, his newest one mr texas i haven't read it yet but i do i i know that i haven't read him i need to go check him out man i, I love I, I mean most of the stuff of his is is non-fiction you know yeah. uh i read the looming towers yep. first which a lot of people read um going clear first since you know okay. that was a, a big deal when it came out okay i love his stuff so much he's he's awesome. dude I, I i uh i know what i'm reading next <laughs> that's you know, awesome after this I'll, i'm gonna grab my mcclanahan and and my ethan hawk and, and put it in a, a stack next to the bed so which mcclanahan's do you have um let me check my library app no i mean you know <laughs> real fast if you have is um, if you have so i'd say Crapalacia is my favorite of his, which is on two dollar. I but... so I, I read crap I read Crapalacia. Okay. I, the next one is um Sarah uh, he, Book. Sarah Book is there's two in between that the one is not is is kinda not fully him, or at least it's a it's a comic book about Daniel Johnston and he wrote the text. But then he has another book called Hill William. You know, like Hillbilly, but Hill William. Hill William. <laughs> That's very fun. Dude, I didn't know he did a comic book. Well, he did the words for it. He's a big Daniel Johnston fan. Another another person with Texas ties. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so fucking lame. Uh but yeah, he did the he did the kind of the I think the text for that, but it I ha I'll be honest with you, I haven't read that one. That's on two dollar radio too. Incantations um, of Daniel Johnston. Correct. Incantations of Daniel Johnston. But I, I write comics is the reason why oh, I was like, you check it out. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's good if Scott fucked with it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Um but yeah, all Scott's stuff's good. Um yeah. he's he's I love that guy. He's like I said, I mean closest thing I have to a literary big brother for sure. We're sort of getting close to wrapping up. I feel like we talked about everything but your work, and I feel bad. But no, 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 no. I like that. The the big I, there was a couple things I wanted to wrap up with. Yep, hundred um, percent. You're uh, so you did win the, that the short story. Oh yeah, McMurtry. McMurtry, I want, Yeah, I want to talk about sort of before and after that. Okay, and because you know I write a lot of short stories, submit short stories. I know people who listen do the same thing, and 
that kind of grind of producing work, not like as fast as you can, but like, you know, going through work and getting it out there and submitting and having it bounce back and submitting again. Talk to me about the process of submitting to that contest, mm -hmm. winning mm -hmm. it, and then mm -hmm. kind of the trajectory of what happened after you won it, whatever mm -hmm. the, the reality of it is. I, I, I'm just so interested. Sure. So it was one of those where I wrote this story after hearing about the competition. So like I knew that Larry McMurtry was going to judge this award and I was like, I'm going to write a fucking banger, dude. I'm going <laughs> to fucking write a banger. And so uh, I sat down or I probably went jogging, kind of had these ideas, put it together. It's a Western, uh, which Larry said he wasn't going to pick a Western as the winner, but he really, I, well, it's one of those things. Larry's kind of a prick. I didn't really know him or nothing. <laughs> like, like here's his letter to, to Texas Obser Observer. Uh, I've picked Brian Alcar as the first Henley. It has a great sense of atmosphere, period. Damn. All right. Thanks, Larry. <laughs> but that's just, that's just Larry McMurtry, I think. He's he's salty, dude. Go read some of his criticism, and he's fucking mean, dude. Yeah. <laughs> but so, um, so you know, I just sent it in. Um, uh, I w there were like five finalists. I I ended up winning. Um, it was like a thousand dollar award, and then. Texas Observer had me go to some little fake Western town and took pictures of me and shit like that. <laughs> and I remember sitting there thinking, you know, I'm getting my pictures taken in this little fake Western town by these photographers who are like doing this long, you know, it was like a four hour photo shoot. And I'm like, dude, I just want a big award that Larry McMurtry gave me. And I was like, I'm going to get an agent phone call any minute. I didn't get shit. Yeah. I didn't get <laughs> fucking nobody gave a fuck and and i got furious i was like motherfucker philip roth gave me an award you there's no way an agent wouldn't fucking call me and i was like larry mcmurtry fucking just philip roth compared to larry M are you out of your mind larry <laughs> mcmurtry's a god next to that fucking turd yeah and i was just like okay cool I hate this industry. I was so angry. And then it took it took me several... But oh, I will also say, too, though, that probably opened up my idea of doing a little more genre work because it was a Western. Um, and I do think that it opened up doors for me later on. But I did not see... I expected wholeheartedly somebody to reach out and be like, hey, we should do your short story collection. Well, that short story is in a Holler Presents collection. Scott McClanahan put that book out. We maybe sold 400 copies. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And, and on Amazon and Amazon alone. And I remember thinking at the time, but luckily I was working with Scott. And I, I truly believe Scott's one of the better writers of the generation. So I was like, uh, that's just as good, you know. Um, but it also made me realize again geography and class and stuff in this industry is insane because larry mcmurtry was one of the best five best writers working at the time and i mean he just was five best living writers i mean yeah and it didn't matter 
It didn't matter. And I and I again I can't imagine if Philip Roth or Thomas Pynchon or David Foster Wallace, I think was alive at the time, had given me a, an award. It it would have I feel like that would have opened doors. And I remember just being like, no door, but but also none of that I truly believe. But in 2011? Oh, sure. Oh, bro. <laughs> yeah. oh, sure. oh, sure, dude. I, trust I would... me. I, I've been in those positions, too. And not that specific position. Yeah. You know, no one has ever given me yeah. a word like that. But yeah. the idea of being like, why the fuck aren't you paying attention to this? And Yes. Yeah. And, and every writer has that even when shit goes good. Yeah. <laughs> That, I, I, from my understanding, uh, oh God damn it, Sal Bellow used to get sad every year because he couldn't win the fucking Nobel again. <laughs> Imagine that. Imagine you get, that you can only get thing. it once. So yeah, you're just you like, get... fuck. All right, or you hear the stories about Philip Roth sitting by his phone, you know, in uh, on Nobel in Nobel Prize uh, season, just like, why the fuck aren't they calling me? Where's you know? So it is what it, years. What is the thing George Saunders says? Success is the mountain that grows as you climb it. Nothing, oh, nothing That's... ever satiates. I've met so few writers who are like, I'm cool with where I'm at. Brian Evanson and Stephen Graham Jones are the two writers who I feel like I've met or talked to who are the most like, I, I got what I want. And neither one of them work exclusively in lit. Yeah, you know what I mean. I, yeah. I I I feel like you have to work in genre to have the kind of career that you want. Maybe, I think Maybe. so. Yeah, I mean Graham Jones, like that dude is essentially on every shelf right now. You know, he's I, he's one of the most visible, and he deserves to be great. Fucking guy, smart as shit, has read everything. Yeah, no, I mean, just a and I I've only met him once or twice. Uh, once at a bizarre con we hung out because we had. Uh, he had a book called Zombie Sharks with Metal Teeth on Lazy Fascist, and that same season I had Motherfucking Sharks. Motherfucking Sharks did better than Zombie Sharks with Metal Teeth. <laughs> I'm sitting there thinking like, yeah, motherfucker, I'm on top of the world. Oh no, Steven, you're gonna be... <laughs> no, that's like kind of my joke is that, or not my joke, but that's what I like to tell writers that, like, bro, shit changes. Yep. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, I knew that I was not going to be more successful than Stephen Graham Jones. But like that season, my book was, okay, so that doesn't mean I get to fucking walk around like my dick swings harder than anything else. You know what I mean? Like, it just is what it is. It's such up and down. But yeah, him. And then like, think about, like I said, Brian Evanson, everybody respects him. He might not sell as many books as, say, Graham Jones. I have never met a writer who is like, I don't think he's good. Yeah. Um, I've never heard a bad thing about that dude. Um, so there, there's a few writers out there who just, there's some, you know, who are just like, but I feel like they're not as ingrained in the literary world, or at least they have their fans of some non-literary writers. And so it, I can't tell you how peaceful that makes you to have, have some writers who are your heroes, who were not thought of as geniuses in their lifetime. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, cause then you're like, well, that's okay. 
That's, but if you're like, I got to be Ernest Hemingway, I got to be at 26 years old, I got to put out one of the most important novels in American history, and then I'm just going to be famous for the rest of my life. Well, Ernest Hemingway wasn't famous for the rest of his life. That's why he ate a bullet. Yeah, right? he, like, so. he didn't exactly have a great uh, third act. No, not at all. And so, but it is what, but you know what? He might have if he decided I'm going to start writing noir. See, so that, <laughs> that's the thing, dude, is, and I've talked about this so much, and listeners have probably heard it over and over again in most of my episodes. And one of my best friends and I talk about this all the time. And it's like, what am I going to do? Quit? You can't. But no. it's not, it's not even, you would, if you, if you could have, you would have already. Dude, that is almost literally what we say. Like, yeah. If I was going to quit, I would have quit because mm-hmm. I have been through those troughs, like the fucking yeah. dip in the thing where I'm like, nobody gave a shit. Yeah. And even, but again, even when they do, they don't give a shit enough. Right. Like they can't make you God, which is nope. what sadly everybody kind of wants. Unfortunately, you won't. Uh, in your lower moments, you know what I mean? Sure. In your lower moments, you're like, oh, I need to be satiated with attention. Yeah. But no, I mean, um, and I quit a lot too. What's that? What's that? Mark Twain, uh, quitting smoking is easy. I do it every day. <laughs> uh, I, my, I tell my wife all I'm quitting. I'm quitting. She's like, okay, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm but, sure but, but also too, I've kind of decided or what I try to do, and I think what's helped me with the jobs books is now I see writing as the vehicle that carries my life. It's like, okay, here's how I move through the world. I I have questions that I have to ask in order to produce a project, and all of life is there to give me the answers. And therefore, every day I wake up, I'm doing a type of research. And so even if I'm not sitting down and writing, I am writing in that at least I'm allowing my soul to grow. I'm trying to read. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to learn. And that's honestly the better part of the writing is it's a kind of religion. It's it's not even really the product that you produce. It's a lifestyle. Um, and, and if you can separate, and it's not always easy, but separate, okay, it's my lifestyle as opposed to it's my, uh, it's how I make my living. Uh, it's a lot better to have it be your lifestyle than for it to try to be your living because very few people get it to be their living and a lot of people who make their living writing are miserable sacks of shit (laughs) because you can't ever they can't make you god and and when you feel real low that's all you want i want to be the best (laughs) (laughs) well that's a perfect place to end it um I appreciate you coming by and chatting yeah, with me. Dude. Um, Bad Foundations yeah. out. Uh, Clash Books, January 17th. Oh, I think it's 23rd. Oh, is it 23rd? Oh, shit. It, you okay. know what, dude? I've heard three dates today. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> it's out in January of 2024. If it is that month or it's past, that book might be out. So Clash Books, Bad Foundations by Brian Allen Carr. And you, you said you're doing a reading. Dream Palace Books in Indianapolis on the 29th with Sam Berman and somebody else. Holy shit, Parker. Ah, uh, fuck, what's Parker's last name? I can't remember. I'll figure it out. I'll email you the information on it, too, so you can come, because I want to meet in person. Absolutely. I will be there. Um, Dream Palace yeah. Books, Indianapolis, Indiana. Brian Alicar, hey, I appreciate you coming by, man. Parker Young. I appreciate you, Parker too, Young. bro. <laughs>
later on how many great meet you did that was brian allen carr thank you so much for swinging by that was a ton of fun as we mentioned bad foundations is in fact out at the end of january in 2024 so if you're listening to this after the 17th or the 23rd either one of those dates the book is definitely going to be out so swing by clashbooks.com to grab a copy of it and tell me what you think. Go to austinrwilson.com. I've got an about page that has a contact form. You can shoot me your, your message. Let me know what you thought of the book, what you think of the, the podcast, all that good stuff. And I also have free stories up on my website you can check out and then a list of my bibliography of places where my work has been published. And again, if you won't like the show, subscribe, all those things. Uh, leave reviews and ratings on whatever platform you listen to it on. It really does help. I appreciate you listening to either just this episode or however many you've listened to. And again, thanks to Brian. Ton of fun. Very glad he came by. I'm looking forward to, to doing more interviews like that in 2024 and to having more of my work out there for you guys to check out. Thanks so much. <laughs>